Welcome back to another Creative Floor Awards podcast. Shahid here, a very warm welcome to all our regular listeners as well as our new ones. We've managed to somehow uh, get a few listeners uh, over in the Ukraine, uh, which is absolutely mind-blowing when we think about what's currently going on over there. If you are listening to us and you're in the Ukraine, you do have our very, very best wishes for peace and safety. Our award show is open and the next deadline is the 25th of March. You're probably hearing me mention deadlines every week. The actual final deadline is the 15th of April. But if you do want to save a little bit of money, do get into the earlier deadlines if you can. And if you are able to, please do hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you're listening to these podcasts. And if you do have a spare 10 seconds, I'd massively be grateful if you could give us a rating and a review. And a little bit of news for you too. Our talent and diversity fund voting has closed and we will be announcing where our talent and diversity fund is going. So it's hugely exciting. And I'd just like to personally thank every single agency and every single person who does support our award show. It's only because of your support we're able to do all the charity work and help as many people as we can. Right, onto the podcast. So this is with Rashad Tabakawala, who is an absolute legend in the advertising world. He might not be so well known in the healthcare space, but I guess that's a good thing because we've brought him especially to you. And I don't want to spoil this podcast for you, but he's been working in the in the advertising world for about 37 years or so, literally at the very, very top of network world. He's been responsible for purchasing some incredible agencies that cost billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars, such as Sapien, Epsilon, Razorfish, etc. And I know that a lot of agencies out there do use our podcasts as part of people's training and development. And this certainly is going to be a masterclass for anyone listening to this who is in the world of communications or wants to get into the world of communications. For all the creatives out there, please listen to this and do yourself a big, big favor and send this episode to all your account teams, all your grads, all the way up to the leadership teams that you have. I've literally just done you all the biggest favor and you'll know what I mean when you get to the end of this podcast. Thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. I learned so much. Do let me know what you think. I hope you love it as much as I do. Enjoy. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another Creative Floor podcast. It's Shahid here. So excited to bring you someone I've admired for many, many years. Author of Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. One of Business Week's top business leaders and one of Time Magazine's top five marketing innovators and all-round legend, Mr. Richard Tabakawala. Hello. Hello, that's a very fascinating and bombastic <laughs> intro for a unemployed, starving author, but I'll take it. <laughs> you're, you're, you're too modest, you're, you're definitely too modest. There's no way I was gonna introduce you like that. Anyway, it's, it's why, why we've got you on here, because Perfect. of your, your humbleness. Um, well, we're massively honoured to have you. You've just mentioned to me just before we started recording that you're actually in Miami, right? Yes, I am. I am in Miami today, and uh, Sunday I fly to Austin, Texas. So I came in last night from Chicago, so I go Miami to Austin, back to Chicago. Well, I'm in London, so it's um, I kind of have to ask you how the weather is in Miami. <laughs> It's fantastic. It's 75 degrees and sunny. And uh, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. And as you probably know, Miami has become a hotspot in the United States for not only its weather, but it has a very, uh, I would say, different type of government that is anti-mask, anti-everything. Uh, oh, wow. And it's also trying to become the crypto capital of the United States. So it's. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of uh, transplants from California either go to Miami or Austin. So the two places I'm moving from this, uh, in the last next two days are the two places where people from California and a lot of the country are moving Texas and Florida. Oh, wow. It's good to know. 
Well, we're, we're obviously in London and it's very gray and rainy and miserable. Like Chicago, yes, like Chicago, where, I, where I'm from. <laughs> yeah. You know, Chicago and London. Chicago and London. Yeah, for sure. But anyway, it, it's, it's amazing that you've been able to join us. You're obviously a very well-known sage, may I put it that way, in, in the marketing world. And, and what I personally love about you, Richard, when I hear you speak, when I read your articles, is that I actually understand every word that you say. It doesn't sound complicated. It's not marketing jargon. You know, that makes me roll my eyes and want to go to sleep. I love the fact that you talk about feelings. You, you stress the importance of humanity, the soul and purpose. But I guess before we get to some of that, and you can maybe help share of your your helpful insights on all of that for our audience. I thought it'd be really interesting if we maybe start off by finding a little bit more about you that others might not necessarily have heard speaking about before. So basically, I thought it'd be great if we could just hear about how you started out. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, very quickly, I grew up in Bombay, India, uh, which is now known as Mumbai. I got a degree in advanced mathematics. I came to the University of Chicago for an MBA in finance and marketing. I was an immigrant without a work visa. So one company, which was the Leo Burnett Advertising Agency, took a chance on me. And I began there in the uh, client service department as a, you know, went through client service, which is account service or suits as we would call them. Um, And in those days, we actually did wear suits. And I basically spent, I'd say, between 1982 and 1993 for 11 years in account service, rising to account director. And then, you know, there's a fork in the road. And the fork in the road for me was uh, there was a new department which was struggling to integrate itself back into the agency because they were all outside people called Direct Marketing and Database. So I was asked if I'd go in and help them. Uh, both as a diplomat from Leo Burnett to this new department, but also bring in some of the skill sets of the new department and make it available to Leo Burnett. So that's how I started Database and Direct, spent that for a couple of years. And then I launched the Interactive Marketing Group, which then came out to become the first, one of the first digital agencies called Giant Step. And this was 1995, so over 25 years ago. Uh, and help grow that. And that's how I learned to be an entrepreneur. I remained a Leo Burnett employee, but everybody else were Giant Step employees. We moved out of the building onto a loft. We put companies like United and McDonald's on the web. Uh, Grew that from zero to about 125 people profitably, and then was asked to spin off the linear, to help spin off the Leo Burnett media department into Starcom. That was actually being done by a couple of individuals. They asked me to come and help them as well as launch the digital endeavors for that. And that company eventually through a combination of mergers and then eventually being purchased through Publicis became what was known as Publicis Media, which you know today is the largest media buying and planning company in the United States and the large, second largest in the world. And along the way, I thought we had to be better at digital. So I started working with our French owners and we started purchasing companies like Digitas and Razorfish, which I eventually became chairman of. And then I got booted up to the corporate level where I was the chief strategist and chief growth officer of the company and um, was involved in you know acquisitions like Sapient, tangentially on the last one, which was Epsilon. But I had wanted to start my own career uh, or I didn't realize that when I joined Leo Burnett that I'd end up working there for 37 years or not Leo Burnett, but different companies of publicists. And I had wanted to be an author. I wanted to be a speaker and an advisor. So I found a way to uh, elegantly exit. I took a couple of years because they didn't let me go immediately. Uh, but I exited to this new life for the last two and a half years where now I work for myself, which is, I don't have, you know, I not, don't have a quote-unquote regular job. Um, I published a book called Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. And I, you know, write a substack. I advise companies. I speak. And uh, I do things like, you know, helping folks like you and other people in whatever you all need help in. That was an amazing 
and, and <laughs> very articulate summary of 37 years. What made you go to, into advertising in the first place? Was it something you always wanted to do? No, so what, what, what made me want to go into advertising, and I was very interested in advertising because in the 1980s, which is a little bit different than you know today, and hopefully we get back to there, in the 1980s, um, the two things I was fascinated wa- with was strategy. I was very interested in strategy. And I was also very interested in culture and creativity. And in the 1980s, uh, companies like Leo Burnett and others, you know, Fitco and a whole bunch of others, were seen the same way today McKinsey and Goldman Sachs are seen, it, which is there was McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, Leo Burnett, et cetera. So we had access to boardrooms. We, in many cases, were the marketing strategy group for our clients. And, and I thought you're, the advertising agency and you know, Leo Burnett had 32 clients, operated out of Chicago, and was this amazing combination of creativity and culture and marketing strategy. And marketing strategy is what I knew I wanted to do. Creativity and culture is what I was interested in and didn't know enough about American creativity and culture because I'd grown up in India. So it just so happened. Now, Lucky Strike Extra, that it was also the one company that gave me a job. So, but, uh, uh, you know, so, so that was, that was good. And, and the reason the other companies didn't give me a job, the best I could tell besides me being pathetic was I did not have a green card, right? So they said, we don't hire people like that. And, you know, Burnett broke its rules. Uh, so, you know, some people think I've stayed there for 37 years because I was loyal. Uh, maybe I stayed there 37 years because I was unemployable and the only way to get me employed was to hire myself, which is what I did. <laughs> well, it's a good lesson for all of us who, uh, who haven't right. got a green card, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll sort of move on from from this sort of advertising sure. publicist um, world in a bit. What do you think were your main sort of learnings over the 37 years? If you could go back to where you sort of were at the start of your career, middle of your career, and if you could go back and tell yourself, hey, <laughs> this is what I wouldn't do, change this sure. or, or do something differently, what would you do? So, you know, one of the things is because people have asked me that, I eventually wrote it down. I wrote it twice. I wrote it after I was at uh, year 35. And then now, because uh, I'm year, a year 40, though the last two and a half years has been working for myself, um, I wrote something called 12 Career Lessons, um, which people can find and you can put in the show notes. It's at rishad.substack.com, but it's called 12 Career Lessons. And these are the three key points I'd make of there. I won't tell you all the 12, but broadly the points I make are plan your career thinking that it's going to last 40 to 50 years and not three to 10 years. We often make decisions thinking that our careers are much shorter than they're going to be. What that means is you want to think patiently and also not get you know, worked up if you have a bad two or three months or things like that. Uh, so think longer term versus shorter term, which is number one. Second is early on in your career, in addition to finding the least sucky job you can. So don't think about like mission and vision and values. When you're early in your career, just get a good job. It's all going to be pretty sucky because all the stuff nobody wants to do is what you get to do. But there, the key thing really is to just get it and start learning craft and skills on whatever your interest is. The third biggest piece of advice. So one is, you know, don't fret too much in the early years about what you're doing. Just build craft, think obviously long-term. And then by the time you're like in your middle career, which is about 10 to 12 years, that stage begin to select not the company, not the assignment, but the boss. That about the middle of your career, everything depends on who you work for. And I was very fortunate that for 25 of my 37 years, I ended up working for just two people. Uh, you know, one was a guy called Jack Clues who started Publicis Media, and the other guy was Maurice Levy, who didn't start but was a driving force behind Publicis. Uh, and and we do not, you know, sort of understand that. So, so to a great extent, uh, think long term, find a good boss, and hang on for life. And you know, early on when you've got sucky jobs, just sort of take it. 
you know, in, the, in, in that. Those are some of the lessons I'd share with people. Yes, that's fantastic advice. And we'll certainly share the 12 career lessons um, yep. in, in this podcast. What did you learn from Maurice? What, what did you notice about him that, was, that made him very special? Well, I would say that there were many things, but the ones that I think people may not understand as much is he is this amazing combination of a fourth dimensional chess thinker. So he basically, he doesn't think in three dimensions, he thinks in four because I used to think I could think in three and then he would show me stuff and I'd say, oh, I didn't think about it that way. Um, but he's a fourth dimensional chess thinker infused with humanity. So you can have fourth dimensional chess thinkers who are like really cold and really look at people as chess pieces. He didn't look at people as chess pieces. Uh, he didn't look at, and so that combination that he has, uh, uh, he's obviously a, highly strategic, very competitive uh, businessman, uh, but combined with a great deal of humanity and learning and culture. Uh, and he exposed me to some of those things. Like he was the, he is the chairman of the Shimon Peres Foundation. And before Shimon Peres passed away, he had me meet Shimon Peres, right? At a little sort of breakfast at Davos. Um, and, you know, so I think that is one thing that stands out, which is the ability to combine Amazing, you know, fourth dimensional chess thinking, business competitiveness, and a certain degree of ruthlessness when it comes down to as needed, but with a great deal of humanity and other kinds of things. I think that's number one. Uh, the number two, which is something that is hard for most people to recognize, um, was his basic belief that the institution and the company. Uh, is far more important than even the irreplaceable individual. Uh, and, you know, to a great extent, you know, once in a while I would say, you know, he'd say, this person, you know, is um, not behaving correctly. And I might remind them that this person was critical to a lot of revenue and critical to a lot of clients. And uh, he'd say, you know, all the graves in France are filled with people who are indispensable. And the lesson there was, don't think you're so cool, mister. Uh, there's, uh, the institution is more important. And so his basic belief was, even though he's, he's now the executive chairman, but he was the, only the second CEO, and he was the CEO for about, you know, he was for 30, 40 years, uh, and he he sort of sculpted modern, global, multidisciplinary publicists while he didn't found the original publicists. Uh, but even he said, hey, uh, all I am is I'm a steward for the company. And that to me is, you know, fundamentally probably the difference between him and uh, John Wren and Martin Sorrell is John Wren is very much like Maurice in a different way right, that he's a steward. Um, and Martin Sorrell, having founded WPP, uh, you know, at some particular stage believes it's about Martin Sorrell. Now, it's not that these people are underway, not egoistic or shrinking violets, but, you know, I would not see Ren, I would not see uh, Maurice, I probably would not see, you know, Roth, uh, who's now retired. I wouldn't see them turning on their own company ever. Uh because I think they would see them, they would, regardless of what happened to them, they would see themselves as stewards. So his overall thing about, you know, it sort of links back to think longer term, which is what I learned from him. You know, don't think you're disposable. Don't think anybody, I mean, don't think you're, you're very, very important, but you can't hold a gun to anybody's head. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and obviously everything else that everybody does, he was, you know, big on ideas, big on focusing on clients. And they're all very, all of these leaders, and I've met many of them, uh, some more than others, uh, incredible leaders who are under usually massive amounts of pressure. But when you actually get to talk to them, they tend to be very human. 
That's really interesting you say that. I mean, because obviously Maurice Levy is a, you know, most most people have heard of him and seen him and, and, and heard him speak. He is one of those characters. He is a legendary figure within our industry. With your experience of, you know, what you've been doing over the last couple of years of working beyond just the publicist group, have you noticed that the, the characters are still around or do you just think that there are fewer characters around and everything is a little bit more business-like it's a little bit more ruthless because even if I just step back and I look at the state of the world it is quite shocking when you just sort of see <laughs> who are the sort of the types of leaders that we have just in general well what's your observations on that so you know I would say that what there, there have been two or three changes that have happened I think the, the first is the business just by the nature of the business has and there are good reasons why it turned out this way because it needed capital, it needed to invest, it needed you know a generation of people to potentially cash out. But the business when I was in it was probably very stilted towards product and creativity and not caring about numbers. In fact, not caring about numbers enough, which is why at times even Leo Burnett got into trouble because the basic belief was if we look after the product, everything will be fine. But along the way, the world changed. You know, clients began to think about it different ways. Things were starting to be unbundled and not thinking about what I call the spreadsheet and thinking only about the story could get you into trouble. But sometimes what happens in the way our industry works is sometimes we tilt towards the spreadsheet too much. And when we tilt towards the spreadsheet, the big danger we have in our organizations is we then become not any different than an accounting firm or a financial firm. And and if we become an accounting and financial firm, I don't think we can win that way because by our very nature, what separates us and what we actually produce, whether it's a media plan, a strategy, a creative plan, or whatever, is something that inspires people to choose with their hearts and not with you know, numbers. Uh, and so we have to be careful about that. So coming back to your original question, I think the characters are still there, but there are two problems. Number one is they have so much, so many jobs depending on them, they aren't allowed to be a little bit crazy with clients because clients might not take to them so well like they might have in the past. Uh, I think that's number one. Um, and and number two is most organizations where you still have these things, tend, where you have the bigger personalities, tend to be run by people who either adore creativity or creatives themselves, right? Uh, and, and, and what tends to happen is if you, you can be an account person with a, you know, great personality, and but but you have to sort of embrace creativity. But that's the change. The business has become a little bit more about running the business than about the product. I'm not saying we aren't about the product, but there's been sort of this emphasis. And so as a result, one of the most amazing things about the ad industry or the marketing services industry is we've forgotten to differentiate ourselves. So, you know, the challenge that, marketers actually put forth is they don't they think all of us are replaceable with another one of us okay uh you know hey you don't do it here at publicist we'll take it to ipg if you don't do it we'll take it to wpp if you don't do it we'll take it here so in the old days there was like much more differentiation we don't have that differentiation now we're working at it all the companies are now working to bring that back so i'm not saying we are no longer differentiated but there was a period where the companies were not that differentiated and that was the key thing when, you know, Doyle Day and Burnback stood for something, Leo Burnett stood for something, right? Uh, and there was a Doyle Day and Burnback type of advertising, a Doyle Day and Burnback type of culture, a Doyle Day and Burnback type of people. And the same thing was about a Leo Burnett. Uh, then, you know, at some particular stage, there was a Hal Riney type of thing. Uh, now, you know, I'd say, you know, I don't know the difference between, you know, Wonderman Thompson and, you know, AKQA Gray, besides that there are two merged companies. Like, what's the difference in the the work and the people, 
right? So if you basically have the same containers with different names, then clients don't value us. And I think one of the most amazing things that happened recently, and I'm going to potentially have the opportunity to meet this lady. I've not met with her, but she and me are speaking at the same offsite, and then we can and hopefully we'll spend time with her. Uh, you know, at the recent Super Bowl, um, there was an ad by Coinbase, which everybody found fascinating because it was basically, you know, you, you saw it was just QR basically code. a QR yeah. code that was bouncing around for 90 seconds or whatever it was bouncing around for. And the CEO of Coinbase, Brian Armstrong, basically said, that was something that no agency could have created, any kind of disparaged agencies. Now, it's kind of interesting. That was actually created by agencies. Okay. Those ideas were created. But the person who stood up was this lady who's the CEO of the Martin Agency, right, who basically said, this is bullshit. Okay. And, and my thing is, that was the big difference. The big difference, and this is one of the things I've learned both from Jack and from Maurice, uh, where they were basically willing to, and I've seen Jack Clues do this. Uh, we were willing to resign a client if we didn't think we were treated with respect. Okay, um, that's what we need to get back, and it's not because because you know people need to treat me and a dog named Boo like respect, but we cannot attract and retain world class talent in an industry that is considered to be second class. And we're not second class. I think we're a great industry. And and I think that the, the era that is coming, the Web3 era, is going to be amazing for our industry. Uh, and I think we're full of a lot of first class people who sometimes are a little bit docile and don't speak up, right? My basic belief is, hey, listen, the future of any brand isn't going to be differentiated on the plumbing. It's not going to be differentiated on data. That's bullshit, Right. Because everybody's got the same data. I mean, unless you're Google and Amazon, don't be ridiculous. It's not <laughs> going to be done on. It's going. It's going to be done your financial systems or your accounting systems, all of which are commoditized on the cloud, okay, or on your content management systems. It's going to be in how you basically tell stories, how you gain insights, and how you move people, and all of that is basically done through our industry. And so my basic belief is we create amazing value. Why do we basically not do that? And I know it's possible because I can say that I used to do it in small parts when I was in our company. But, you know, right now, yes, it's true. I am a, you know, one part of me is this unemployed author. But the other part of me is I work with marketers all over the world. And I charge a lot of money and nobody says, boo. Okay, and I go into a boardroom and say they they tell me I'm stupid, and I say, not any more stupid than you, my friends. Okay, uh, I mean that's not the way I normally talk, but I, obviously I don't say that way, right? But 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 you know they'll say like you may I very elegantly, kindly told us we don't know what we're talking about. I said I never said anything of the sort. I said I don't know what I'm talking about. But you said the way you said it, you claim that you and I were the same, and therefore you we don't know what you're talking about. And I said well. You're right. We don't, we don't know what we're talking about. And they said, see, you told us we're not, we don't know what we're talking about. But it's just a way of doing it, right? But what they basically do is if you never guide a client, if you never lead a client, if you never speak back to a client, I'm not saying don't be respectful and don't listen. Then in effect, I always tell people like, hey, if you want to buy somebody who agrees with you, why don't you just buy a mirror? Mm. Why buy anybody? Yeah. It, 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 do you know what? I think anyone listening to this who works in the industry will completely be nodding their heads right now. I think it is very hard to differentiate between most agencies nowadays. Everyone pretty much has the same script. And I, th I think what you're saying also, is how I'm interpreting it, is like there has been an increase in fear. There is a fear of saying no. There has been a fear of walking away. And I think most people can, be, you know, definitely reflect on, on what you're saying the bit I'm trying to sort of understand is you know when you're going in there and you, you're essentially holding up a mirror to them and saying look this is what <laughs> this is what you're doing right now and and they maybe are all acknowledging what you're saying I mean are they changing and how do you get how do you get a big organization like a big network 
a holding company to sort of go, actually, you know what, we are going to stand by our principles. And that will mean that some some months or some some years are going to be slightly challenging because we're going to have to walk away from pitches. And we're going to have to say no. And we're going to have to start looking after our product. I mean, do they do that? Yes. Yeah, so increasingly, I think everybody is doing that. I know, for instance, that my old place of work is doing that. Uh, there are some challenges to doing it complete, like the way, like, for instance, I find it much easier to do it by myself than to do it when I was inside the company. And I, I was trying to wonder why, even though we were doing it. Uh, and now every company is trying to differentiate in their own way. And maybe by the time we all differentiate, we end up at the same place. But but there are certain things that are basically being done, including recognizing how important talent is, right? So for instance, I know that, and I'm sure other companies have done this, but I know because I had a chance to chat, you know, publicists, when they had good numbers, they basically said, all right, we need to reward our people, including people who are never eligible for a bonus. So they basically spent 50 million euros and gave everybody a week's pay, right? Whether they were justified or not. Uh, right now in the Ukraine, where there are 350 people at publicists, they basically said, regardless of what happens, we're going to pay you for the next year. Regard and we look after your families, etc. Right, and at the same time, they're thinking about a thousand people in Russia. So I think the big thing, fundamentally, and a lot of that comes from the bottom line. But the first, you know, my basic belief is, I've always believed that more important not more important, but as important, I wouldn't say more important, but as important as clients is your employees. Um, and increasingly, uh, companies are beginning to do that. I think everyone is doing that. And they're learning to find ways to differentiate telling the different stories. But the reason why it's difficult, and there are two reasons it's difficult, and I was there, so I know how pressured it is. The first is you have jobs to protect. Right. So there were a lot of times when I wanted to like, like yell at a meeting, but that would be interesting. But then and it, it didn't matter if like I, got, I obviously I wanted to keep my job, but let's suppose they kicked me out. That would be fine. But I, what really was happening is there were hundreds of jobs relied on that client. Right. And so you are very cautious because you realize there are so many people's livelihoods on it. Does that make sense? Mm. Uh, that's, yeah, the, yeah, that's, totally. the, that's number one. And number two, uh, which is, I think increasingly we have become better and better at this, uh, is we actually have to have something different to say. So part of what I sometimes wonder is when we say we are got some really cool stuff, do we? Okay. So I often describe that if you look at most most companies' decks, so I'm not just speaking broadly on the agency ecosystem, but most companies, you know, pitch decks, they'll tell you about the following three things. They'll tell you about their history and what got them where they got. They'll tell you something about all these amazing people. And then they'll tell you about their special tools and processes and techniques and frameworks. Okay. So, what I basically tell folks is we're spending all of our time showing how our colon works, but we don't have one piece of cool shit to show. <laughs> I'm going to get a t-shirt with that quote on. Okay. So, <laughs> right. So my basic belief is like, I walk into a room and I basically say, okay, here's a piece of cool shit. And there was, nobody asked me like, how the hell did you do it? They said, who the hell are you? What are you doing with this cool shit? So I said, here it is. Okay. Then they might basically ask, like, how the hell did you come up with it? I said, I don't know. You know, immaculate conception. God knows. Okay. Uh, that's how you start. You don't go about like every company says, we got this tools. We got this. Our people came from here. We did this. We had networked with this. And, you know, today it's we're in the metaverse and we're cryptocurrency. Okay. Everybody's like, what's that about? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. That's, that's the other issue, which is sometimes we think we are differentiated, but we aren't. So we are blaming it on marketers. But marketers will basically tell me, like, explain to me, you've seen all these decks. Tell me what's the difference. They're all saying exactly the same thing. They're just putting different names on the same thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, the yeah. ones yeah. that stand out, like, you know, the legendary agencies like Aviden and Kennedy, it's the work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> 
So, God, I've got so many questions I want to ask you. Um, Keep going. <laughs> Apologies for this naive question. I have asked quite a few people over my my career, and I've never really got an answer. And, and I don't know if it's because the question's stupid or not. But as I've got you, I'm going to ask you anyway. Why do agencies pitch for free? Why would not the top four or five holding companies just all agree that they will no longer do free pitches? I think the reason that they do not pitch for free or they do pitch for free is A, because they have not differentiated themselves. Marketers have recognized that supply is greater than demand. Okay. And so what is happening is this industry still has too much capacity. Now, maybe post great resignation, but I think broadly, the industry has too much capacity. And so when you are desperate to fill you know, FTEs, you basically pitch for free because you're, because this you know, capacity issue. So for instance, and, and, and even when they do it for free, they don't tell a good story. So I'll give you the equivalent version. When we had to do certain things, I realized we were pitching and, and sometimes we were pitching for free. And I was realizing we were pitching for free because we had clients did not see a differentiation and they thought we were oversupplied. Okay. So when I started my next career, I decided to limit supply to one cell, one person, which is me. Okay. So my company has one person, it's just me. So the good news is they'll say, okay, that's one too many because nobody needs you at all. But anyway, let's say there's one. Okay. So thank God there's at least one. But what's more important in that one is not necessarily that I've, I've do, is I don't have to sell myself. Okay. Uh, I, I started this career basically saying if nobody hired me and my book sold zero copies and I sat at home, I'd be okay. So as a result, I now have two prices. But I still do stuff for free, but I have two prices. And my two prices basically are expensive and very expensive. <laughs> okay. So people say like, okay, what the hell is expensive? So I said, yes, what's expensive is? They say, yeah, it's pretty expensive. And they say, okay, what's very expensive? So I said, very expensive is free. Right? And they said, what do you mean? I said, you now owe me. There's an IOU. And that's an endless, unlimited IOU. You've just written me a check. Right. And if you're a company and you're asking your company, which has billions of dollars, is asking a one person for free and you're not my friend, you basically are saying you're a desperate company. You are so desperate. You can't attract and retain any talent unless you pay. What, how, what's this? Right. But the other stuff I say, is, of course, I'll work for you. For, I'll, of course, pitch for free. Can you please ship me some crates of your product at home, please? Like, hey, can you give me some watches? They'll say, what do you mean, give me a watch? I said, you want me for free? Why don't I get your watch for free? Right? And, and th that's the thing. The, but I would avoid that even when I was running smaller parts. I could, I could avoid that when I was running smaller parts of publicists because I had differentiated those parts and I had limited supply. But what I reminded people were a couple of things, three things which I now keep reminding people. Number one is I would love to do this for free but client, I don't love you as much as I love my daughters. They said, what's that got to do with anything? I said, here's what I've got a problem. My problem is my daughters have insisted on going to very expensive colleges. And I have to pay them. And if I told them that I, you have to go for free, they couldn't go to those colleges. So I have to choose between doing work for you for free or not having my kids educated. What do you think I'm going to do? So that's one way of having this communication. Don't bring it down to company versus company, but bring it down to individual to individual, right? That's one part of it, which is very important. The second part of it, took to a great extent, is work with procurement, who I don't believe are bad people under any circumstances, and say, listen, procurement, you're in the process of delivering value. You don't tell me you're delivering low price, you're delivering value. So I will show you I've got value, and I'll show you that, my team can work much faster. So we would go in. I had a company called Denu that I ran, and we would charge more than McKinsey. Wow. Right? We would charge more than anybody. And this is the, and procurement accepted it. 
And that was basically because we said in this space, we work so fast and I've got so many good people that on an hourly basis, it looks like we're really expensive, but the absolute cost is really low because we, we'll do that in about one-tenth the time McKinsey works at it. You, 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 not maybe one-fifth the time and we charge twice as much. So you save 60%. Yeah. Right. And those conversations we're not willing to have. The reason we're not willing to have is because we sometimes don't think we're differentiated. So we don't know how to make those conversations happen. Yeah. So it's cost versus value, right? It's, it's, a cost, it's, cost, yeah. it's cost versus value. It's differentiation. And the other thing, and that's one of the things like I'm working on these days is, and this is more like of a, you know, the, what I call seasoned management, which is people like myself. I'm not saying older or anything, but seasoned. Some of us, and you know, sometimes it happens to me, so maybe it only happens to me and everybody else is cool, is <laughs> we, we, we don't know what we're talking about anymore because the world has changed and we start faking it. So therefore, we are very vulnerable and insecure when we talk to clients and they see it, right? They see it. And so the big difference is if I don't know something, I'll go to a client and say, look, I'm learning about this thing, right? Versus faking about faking it. And the moment I say I'm learning about something, they say, teach us how you're learning because we may learn too, right? Versus just putting out words. And in fact, you know, recently, I, I won't yet write on my Substack because I'm still learning about it. But I've recently been putting together things for marketers and for business people all over the world. Uh, virtually, obviously, and that's what I was doing this morning with companies and a couple of companies in Europe. Um, is I'm trying to explain this Web 3.0 thing that everyone's talking about, you know, metaverse and uh, NFTs and stuff like that. And and how I started this is a company actually asked me to help them think through this, and I said, I don't know, I'm figuring it out. They said, Good, that's good enough. You figure it out and tell us how to think about it. So that's what I started doing. And it was clearly, and my whole stuff was, here. my first perspectives. I don't think I know anything, but here's a way to think about it. And if I may say so, it's better than what anybody else has thought about it. Okay. <laughs> I, anybody who sees it said, shit. Like, for instance, Web 3.0 and Metaverse are not the same thing. How about that? Let's start with that. Okay. Right. Let's think that the best thing that's going to happen is not augmented reality, virtual reality, and stupid glasses. It's going to be the wallet. Mm. Okay. Uh, and and, and so, so, so the whole idea is, and people say, like, how did you learn this? So I said, I started learning it like I learn everything. I started doing this stuff and figuring it out. And that's what senior people sometimes don't do. They stop learning. They stop growing. And then they're very vulnerable to clients figuring that out and they're very vulnerable when new companies come into the client and say we know the answer and the client basically looks at us and says well you probably don't and there's no reason we don't and but and i don't care whether you're a small or medium agency or even any type of supplier or any kind of partner if you are not investing in upgrading your mental operating system, if you are not investing in the training and growing your talent, what exactly business are you running, I want to know. And that's what we forgot. The, my biggest concern, and this is not just the agency business, it's across all businesses, with the exception of a few. There are obviously a few like you know, Goldman Sachs, McKinsey's, et cetera, who still do this. Um, there are very few companies today that allocate enough money to teach, grow, and build the skill sets of their clients in a changing world. And, 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 and so what they keep trying to do is keep buying those new skill sets. And that's a terrible way to spend money, keep buying new skill sets. When you can build skill sets, now I know everyone's going to, my whole stuff is I can build everybody's skill set in Web 3.0. Give me a year and a half. It's cheaper than basically you going buying companies a year and a half later. You know, this whole thing about um, agencies, maybe leadership lacking that self-confidence, you know, not acknowledging, you know, their vulnerability if they don't know stuff. How do you how do you get somebody in that position then to to, to turn it around? Can you get them to turn it around or is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? No, no, absolutely turn around. So what happens is 
there is not a single person who you might think is a dumbass who I've not actually met and figured out they were not dumbasses at all. Okay. So I don't think there are stupid people in this agent in this industry or broadly. I think everybody's damn smart and they're really good people. Most of the time, I mean, 80 to 90%, there's always some crazy people, right? But what has basically happened is they're human beings and I basically, the way I explain it to them, and I just did something for a, a group of people, is I'll, here's my three-step answer, and it's simply three steps. It's very easy to describe. It's very hard to do, okay? So the first one is, please recognize that change sucks, okay? So I, I wrote a book, and in that chapter, I have a call, you know, how to manage change so it sucks less, okay? And and I truly believe change sucks. and I. I think I've told you I worked for the same company for 37. I worked for the same two bosses for 25. My wife and I met when we were 12, 50 years ago. So clearly I don't like change. Okay. Um, And I don't think most people like change because when someone comes to me and says change is good, I said, I'm happy. If you want to change, go ahead. Okay. But it's one of those odd things where they say change is good. They want you to do it. You know, when they bring you a bottle of wine, they say, let's share it because it's a good bottle of wine. Nobody says, let's change together. They say, you change. Because change is difficult. As human beings, change is difficult because it's learning. It's a little bit of trauma. It's a little bit of uncertainty. But I explained that's human not to to be worried about change. But while change sucks, irrelevance is even worse. Right? So the first is, are you scared of changing? Are you finding it difficult, especially as you get more senior? Welcome to the party. It's human. And the second is to remind everybody that they can be great leaders. And there are six sets to leadership and six, not six, six key criteria to leadership. The first one being craft, which is you can't be a leader if you don't know your state of the craft. I don't understand how you can be a leader. Like if I went around and said, I'm a leader of doctors, they'd say, what the hell do you know about medicine? Right? So, so the whole idea is you have to work on craft. But, but if you think about it as craft, there's no industry where the state of the craft remains static. It changes. So what is, as a leader, you need to make sure you are on top of craft. But the second and third is obviously you want to be trusted, which is be clear about your intentions. And, and the third one most leaders have to figure out is how much they allocate it time and talent to today versus tomorrow. Because if you don't deliver today, you don't have a job. But if you have a job today and you are prepared for tomorrow, you lose a job. So how do you do that? And then the other three were the emotional things that you mentioned, which is empathy, vulnerability, and inspiration. Empathy is think otherwise. Vulnerability is telling people you don't know it, people will help you, right? And that inspiration is sometimes you just got to basically get people to follow you without the numbers. I think those are the leadership things. But eventually the three pieces of advice I give people, you know, besides Jade sucks and here are the characteristics of leaders and which I would give all the listeners of this podcast. And if I were to say, if someone said like, okay, what is the magic formula besides you fooled everybody all this time for 40 years, which is probably the first one. But okay, let's suppose, let's suppose you actually have something positive to contribute to society. How the hell have you done that? And sometimes people ask me like, how the hell have you figured out all this web 3.0? You're 60 years old. You don't do any shit. How the hell have you done it? I said, no, 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 wait a second. Okay. It's not that, I'm not that pathetic yet. So here's what it is. The first is I encourage everybody to spend an hour a day learning. Okay. If you don't spend one hour a day learning, you basically are going to fall behind. So that people say, okay, this guy doesn't work. We work. Hey, I did this one hour a day. I did one and a half hours when I was part of a board of an 80,000 person company being yelled at by a hundred clients. So you can do it if you want to. You can find 20 minutes from watching less sports, 20 minutes from less social and 20 minutes from less Netflix. That's all you have to do. Don't have to give up any of those. Just take 20 minutes from each of those and you'll be fine. Uh, So that's number one. Number two, and this is a little bit difficult. And this is probably one of the reasons I actually had some value to Maurice and Jack is build a case for the exact opposite of what you believe. So once in a while, not every minute, otherwise you wouldn't be able to operate. But on some of the big things and some of the key things, like we do that and when we were trying to do strategies, when we were trying to do reorgs, when we were trying to do MA, I would basically build a case for the exact opposite of what I was recommending. Okay. 
And that case was so strong that often my management would basically say, what are you doing? Are you recommending for or are you recommending against? So I said, I'm recommending for in this case, but I want you to see the case against, right? And often when my case against was really strong is when they went forward with it. And when my case against was very weak, they'd basically say, have you really figured this out? Or what are you talking about? Are you trying to sell us some stuff? Okay. So that's this building. And why that's important today is because of you know algorithms and us sitting around in our small tribes and being separated because of COVID. We now begin to be surrounded by everybody and everything that says we are cool. And so we start to begin to believe that our flatulence smells like Chanel 5, which it doesn't. Okay, so build the opposite case. And the third one, besides spending an hour learning and building a case, is do. So once in a while, you got to do. So I you know, I didn't read books on Web 3.0. There are no books to read, or I didn't go online and just read. There are lots of amazing places online which I've identified. I basically said, all right, I, just because previously I had done that when someone had told me about, you know, blockchain. So, okay. So what I tell people is, okay, open a Coinbase account, open a MetaMask wallet, open an OpenSea account, mint an NFT, right? Do a couple of things and read a few things here and there. And lo and behold, you start learning stuff. Like I wanted to learn how Substack worked. So I started, I didn't, I read about Substack. I saw people, so I said, I'll do my own Substack, which is what I did. And now I basically get read by 30,000 people every week for free, but 30,000 people. And by doing, here's what happens, is even sophisticated clients are fascinated that you are down in the trenches working on this new shit, right? Therefore, they believe you when you say, I think this is what we need to do. But the two things that's really interesting, one is I think this is what we need to do, not that this is the way, right? I think this is what I got right now. And in fact, in this little thing that I've done on, you know, the, I don't even call it Web 3.0, I call it the future of the internet. So on this thing called the future of the internet, my first, first the, the, it's very interesting how I approach it. It says the future of the internet, first perspectives. Okay, so it's like, these are my first perspectives. I don't know if this is right. The next slide, right, is a disclaimer, which basically says, I'm about to take a positive take on something where a lot of people have a negative take. And then I show them the three places where they should read and watch videos on that everything I'm about to say makes no sense. <laughs> okay, so I said... Look at this, look at this, look at this. In effect, what they're basically, what I've done immediately is said, if any of you all think I've come here like a snake oil salesman, I have actually gone and seen all the people who call me a snake oil salesman and I've listened to them already, okay? But here is why I still believe. Now, it just so happens that I was right about the first two times this happened, which I call the first connected age and second connected age, which was 1993 and 2007. So it's one of the reasons why people say, okay, this old man may actually know something. He was there. Right. And I basically say every bone in my body tells me something like that's happening again. And that's why I'm paying a lot of attention. And years ways I've now figured out what's going on. Right. But but because it started by saying first perspectives, second is by saying there are a lot of people who tell you what I'm about to say makes no sense. OK, I've listened to them. They don't know what the hell I'm saying anyway, because they haven't listened to me. OK, but just in case you thought that that. I wasn't aware of what's going on on the other side. I've gone and that's my, you know, so I, in effect, I've done all these three to suddenly become for some marketers and some businesses, I'm an expert on something that I started learning six months ago, nine months ago. Right. And, and that's the big thing I keep reminding people. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. And because I don't even have to do it anymore. That's why I try to remind people. I said, you got a job. You got real clients to keep. Why aren't you doing this? Right? I, I, I just don't get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds insane when you say it like that. Um, but anyway. So, Rashad, I know we've got like um, only a few minutes left. Sure. I did put out some questions uh, sure. on social media yesterday, just in case anyone wanted to ask you any questions. I've got 
loads. So I'm just going to pick a couple sure. just Absolutely. so we can kind of make the most of the, the final minutes. And what I'll do is I'll try to answer them really fast so you can go through many of them. Okay, cool. All right, first one. Um, what's the future of the creative department? Uh, the future of the creative department is brighter than ever before because we're entering the age of creativity, which is really what Web 3.0 is. But the creative department is in two ways. One is there are people broadly, everybody in the world is creative and you know, 50 million people in the US say they're creative. But then there are some people who practice it as a craft and have a certain sense of expertise. So that is the creative department. I would basically say for them that the future is very bright as long as they continue to understand all the new palettes and skill sets, including the new Web 3.0 skill sets. And, and, and what's your take on the sort of classic models of, of teams, you know, art director, copywriter? Is that a broken model? What, what's your perspective on that? So what I basically believe is that teams are extremely important because innovation and ideas happen at the intersection of different connections. I call you know innovation fresh, insightful connections. What I do believe is that the static team of the copywriter and the art director may only work in certain arenas, and it's more likely that you have six or eight different types of skill sets which connect in different ways depending on the project. I'm not saying that the six or eight all have to work at the same process. But, you know, I would basically say uh, a graphic designer, a art director, an experienced specialist, a uh, production, you know, a sort of artist, a storyteller, a, uh, you know, a coder. All of those are different types of people that have to come together. So we, I think the big, the big thing is we have to think about ourselves as much as makers, as creatives. So I wrote this piece called The Age of Creativity, and I pointed to someone, obviously, unfortunately, he's passed away, Virgin Abloh, who was the head of LVMH's design department and created things like Off-White. And he said, I'm a maker. So I always tell folks, think of yourselves as makers. And when you think of yourselves as makers, you have broader teams they're just teams of two. But in some cases, those team of two might be the right one. Okay, I'll try and squeeze in two sure. more. Okay, is in-housing an inevitable feature? I think in-housing will be a part of every organization. I, however, believe that in-housing is not going to, in most cases, come at the cost of agencies or the cost of other suppliers. Uh, one of the reasons, the three reasons there's going to be some in-housing one is because whenever something is new, clients don't know who to use, so they trust themselves. Second is there are certain things where sales and e-commerce and creativity are intersecting, and for reasons of control and speed, they would like to do that in-house. That's number two. And in some very few cases, they believe that they can save money and it's cost savings, and some people are under pressure for cost savings. So there will obviously be some in-housing of different sorts in different organizations. However, I believe we have seen the high point of, of, of uh, in-housing. And there are three reasons why I think we've reached the top of it. I'm not saying that organizations won't have it and some won't have more and some won't have less. There are three reasons. The first is we no longer are in a Google and Facebook only world. We are now back into a multi-fragmented world with TikToks and new web stuff and Snapchat and all this other stuff. So whenever you have lots of different fragmented media and fragmented opportunities, it's very hard to in-house. In-house is when you have a simple ecosystem. I just got to, you know, I just got to work with Facebook and Google or something like that. That's disappearing. That's number one. The second one is because of the Great Resignation it's very hard for any company to attract and retain enough talent. There's talent is in short supply. And basically it's one of the reasons why even agency fees are going up because even agencies who quote unquote would give stuff away for free, at least I don't know our agencies, but I work, you know, I serve on private equity boards. They can be raising their prices. The demand is so much greater than supply because of a combination of great resignation and new skill sets, especially in, you know, commerce, digital, cloud-based marketing, next generation creativity. And the third is this, and which is very, very important. 
we have now gone to the age of what I call the fractionalized employee. And why would a company, when they can basically access and resource world best talent from anywhere in the world in a distributed landscape, have those as fixed costs that they cannot fire? and whose half-life of knowledge is constantly declining. Why would you do that? It's the stupidest thing. For the modern age, the modern fragmented Web 3.0 landscape, in-housing is not strategically smart. I'm not saying you won't have some of it, but it is completely out of sync with where the future is. It made sense five years ago, makes much less sense. It doesn't mean not, not make sense, but it, lots of companies in e-commerce and other ones will have it. But it's not, I think we've seen peak in housing. I'm not saying it's going to decline, but we've seen peak. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to squeeze one sure. more question, if that's okay. Yep. I'm, going to, I'm going to push it. The last one. You've kind of answered this. Anyway, I'll, answer, I'll ask it anyway. People tell me the heyday of advertising seems to be over. Tighter deadlines, lower margins, higher pressure, etc. Why should anyone stay in the industry or even want to get into it? It's a very good question, and it's a question that, the reason our industry is going to change is because our industry is only about attracting and retaining talent. And what people recognize is that this is an industry that marketed correctly is an amazing place for people to grow and to learn and to build their skill sets. And what is happening is because I think now that marketing is going to be the big differentiator, like in the past logistics was or financial engineering was that, that, and storytelling is going to be as, if not more important than plumbing, which I call poetry versus plumbing. Not that plumbing isn't important that in, 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 in effect, the nature of the work we do and our ability to charge clients is going to go up and our ability to push back is going to go on just because of these trends which is why people will come in. And then the other one really is when you think about it, some of the losses we've had of talent in this industry has been to the big platform companies. Look, I've got lots of friends in the platform companies. Some of them, their stock price may still go up, but most of them, who knows? But let me tell you, it's like basically working for a highly government regulated, huge bureaucracy where you're basically painting a toe of, of a huge, you, you know, you don't drive the body, you drive nothing. Your emails have to be checked because everything is being sued. Everything is being legislated, right? How will you grow in an organization like that? Right? You can't. At some particular stage, you go there. So a lot of people, you know, go to these companies Less and less for the money, because I've even seen the compensation. It's not that dramatically amazing unless the stock price zooms up a lot, okay, uh, which at some stage with laws of large numbers, it might not. But the big thing that I, I find fascinating is the jobs suck, right? So the, the reason you do it is you, you do it to basically say you went to Google and Facebook and all these places. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. It sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, my stuff is go get your little, you know stamp that you were in Google for two years or this thing for five years. Look, her elder daughter, she spent the first five years of her career at Google, which she was doing very well, and she liked it, right? But her, but she wasn't a coder, so she wasn't a software programmer, and she was very clear. She says, "Dad, here's the deal. I get paid really well." but I don't want to do this for the next 15, 20 years because I'll get mentally deranged if this is all I do, right? And she basically said, look, I don't want to get used to this compensation level because she's always said, you know, you've told us don't price ourselves out of our dreams, right? Which is don't get fixated on a lifestyle, mm, right? Nice. But, but, but yeah. the big thing she basically said was this. She says, I want to make things. All I'm doing out here is I'm a second-class citizen to engineers, who really don't listen to me. I mean, if you, if you think about it, Zuckerberg doesn't really care about what Carol Levison said or did not say, right? I mean, this was a real reality. And she says, I want to be a maker. So what she did is she stopped going there. She went to get an MFA in filmmaking, and now she's got a movie on HBO Max. Okay. Oh, wow. and, and, and that is what the, the next generation wants to make, wants to have an impact, wants to care about purpose, wants to care about values. So we can do that in our industry as much as we can do it in any other industry. 
and our industry can also have the margins to pay people well. Uh, so my basic belief is what we need is more of that lady, I forget her name, who was the CEO of the Martin Agency, to basically stand up and say, we are working in a great industry and we ain't going to take shit anymore. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, so Richard, where can people get in touch with you if they want if they want more of your help. Okay, or if they want to keep away. So, uh, 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 so <laughs> yeah. on, on, on Twitter, it's on Twitter, it's at Rashad. Uh, but the best, and then I've got my website, which is RashadTobacco.com. But if they want to hear more of this nonsense every Sunday, uh, they can go to uh, Rashad.substack.com, which is my free thought letter. Comes out every Sunday, but they can also look at the entire archives, which is where 12 career lessons are, age of creativity is, um, the future of marketing is. Um, and the only reason I suggest people look at it is because many, many clients and many agency leaders and many young people and students look at it. So it's a way for me to give back to the industry. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, it's the very expensive free I'm doing, which is what people say. They say, wait a second, you give all this stuff away for free. I said, yeah, it's the fastest way for me to remind people I'm still alive and continue to build my brand. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we'll, we'll post all sure. of those links in the description of, of the episode as well let's conclude i mean richard this has been absolutely amazing this has been so inspirational i'm sure anyone listening to this will be thinking about everything that you've, you've sort of said today i've certainly loved this whole element of don't price yourself out of your dreams you know be a maker yeah. for all leaders listening to this be vulnerable be open be honest and at the end of the day it's all about cool shit so <laughs> it's it's just amazing it's been fantastic so Richard I wish you a, a happy a happy Absolutely. day and, and a lovely weekend and it's been a pleasure thank you very much thank you for having me on the show <laughs>